for this morning. We're in Lesson 7 in our sort of journey through the history of the church. This morning we're going to be looking at the early Middle Ages, the period of late antiquity, some call it. And all of this, I think, is actually very timely because today is November 12th, which means that it is 43 days until Christmas. 43 days until Christmas. Christmas is six weeks from tomorrow. So 43 days until Christmas. And uh, that number is actually, I think, coincidental in this sense that two of my favorite Christmas stories actually relate to the number 43 because it was in 1843 that Charles Dickens published his famous A Christmas Carol. And 100 years later in 1943, a man named Philip Van Doren Stern published, he actually self-published a short story. It was only about 40 Uh, 4,000 words, 4,100 words, uh, 21-page booklet, and that short story was called The Greatest Gift. You're like, well, we've never heard of The Greatest Gift. Well, that's okay. The Greatest Gift was a work that he had been working on since 1939, and he was trying to get it published. Nobody wanted to publish it, so finally in 1943, he self-published 200 copies of this 21-page booklet, and he gave them out to family and friends as Christmas gifts, the greatest gift. Well, one of those circulated through Hollywood, where it came to the attention of an actor named Cary Grant, who was interested in playing the lead role of the main character in this book, A Greatest Gift. But as things happen in Hollywood, Cary Grant ended up not getting the part The short story was actually sold for $10,000 to Frank Capra's movie-making company, his film company, and a guy named Jimmy Stewart ended up playing the lead role in this film adaptation of The Greatest Gift. The following year, 1944, Good Housekeeping Magazine actually picked it up and published it under the title The Man Who Was Never Born, and then eventually it became the movie It's a Wonderful Life which some of you have probably never seen It's a Wonderful Life, but it's, one, it's considered one of the 100 best movies ever made. So just out of appreciation for film history, at some point you have to watch It's a Wonderful Life. So Christmas Carol, 1843, It's a Wonderful Life, 1943. Why am I telling you about that? Not just because it's 43 days till Christmas, but because It's a Wonderful Life Obviously, if you've seen it, you understand the plot. And really, the title, The Man Who Was Never Born, is probably a more accurate title to the actual story about a man named George Bailey, who, through the angel Clarence, okay, so some bad angelology and some bad theology, (laughs) says he wishes he had never been born, and he gets his wish, and then he realizes how bad life would be if he had never been born. Okay, you get it. The connection that I want to make this morning is if we take that same concept and we apply it to Christmas, we could ask ourselves the question, what if Jesus had never been born in Bethlehem? What if the incarnation had never happened? What would the implications 
of that reality be for us as sinful human beings? If God the Son had never taken on flesh and become a man and been born in Bethlehem nearly two, well, over 2,000 years ago. Well, obviously, the implications would be significant because if God never became man, then the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have never lived a perfect life as a man. He would have never died on a cross as a man. He would have never conquered death for us. There would be no mediator between God and man, no substitute for sinful men because the incarnation never took place. The reality of Christmas and what we celebrate, we as Christians celebrate it every day, but what we celebrate even as a society once a year is the reality that God took on flesh and became a man so that as a man, he might reconcile sinful men and women to God. That's the miracle of Christmas. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about that miracle, the miracle of the incarnation. So nothing, nothing gets us in the Christmas spirit quite like talking about controversies and councils. Now, I knew, I knew you were thinking that. It's eggnog and Christmas lights and seasonal music and church councils. Nothing says Christmas like church councils. But in church history, there are many, many church councils, but there are seven that are considered the major councils. And we'll talk a little bit more about those in just a moment. But what's interesting to me is that the issue at stake or the focus of all seven of the seven major councils, all seven of them focus on the person of Jesus Christ and specifically on the implications of the incarnation. In other words, all seven of these seven councils are focused on the miracle and the mystery of Christmas, that God took on flesh and became a man. And so in that sense, I do think it's appropriate for us this morning, as we anticipate celebrating Christmas in just six weeks, to think about how Christians throughout church history tried to wrap their minds around the fact that the eternal second member of the Trinity, God very God, God the Son, became a man and, be- and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, well, we do have a little bit of review here just to start out in our introduction. So setting the stage... We are looking at, this morning, we're going to be looking at the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. It's in those 500 years that these seven councils take place. But you'll remember as we kind of think back that the first three centuries from the time of the Apostolic Fathers all the way through the uh, end of the 3rd century, this is called the Antonicene period, meaning before the Council of Nicaea. So anta meaning before, not against but before the Council of Nicaea. And then in 325, the Council of Nicaea, which we are going to talk a little bit more about today, and of course, which we heard a wonderful song about earlier this morning, in the 4th century and then the 5th century. And it was last week in the 5th century that we were talking about Augustine 
and Chrysostom, Augustine being the leading church father of the late 4th, early 5th century in the West, and Chrysostom, same in the East. And also in the 5th century, you have the fall of the Western half of the Roman Empire, which is why there it says the fall of Rome. And this is called the Nicene and post-Nicene period. So these 500 years represented here are generally considered the patristic period or the era of the church fathers in church history. And it's subdivided between or around the Council of Nicaea between the Antonicene period and then the Nicene and post-Nicene period. So the seven major councils in church history include the seven that are here in the next five centuries, starting from the fourth century all the way through the eighth century. Oh yeah, we're still there. Good. So you have the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and then the Council of Constantinople, the first one in the year 381. Then you have a council at Ephesus in 431, a council at Chalcedon in 451, a second council of Constantinople in 553, a third council in 680, actually went over the year into 681, and then finally a second council of Nicaea, which is the seventh of our big seven councils in the year 787. So I hope you remembered all of those dates and councils because next week when Jade does announcements, he's going to be testing you on it. No, I don't know if that's true or not. And I'm not going to be here to verify, but in any case. By the way, Jade, you looked very formal this morning. I appreciated that. The denim slacks were definitely a nice look. In Jade's defense, because he works at the seminary, he has to dress more like this all the time. So when he wants to dress up, he puts on his denim slacks. So I thought that was a nice, nice addition. All right. So these are the seven councils of church history. And again, they're called ecumenical councils or major councils. And we'll talk about what that word ecumenical means in just a moment. But I kind of wanted to just give you a framework and a roadmap so that as you think about the timeline of church history, you understand where we are. We're going from the patristic age into what we would call the early middle ages or the age of antiquity. Uh, Just a comment about the Middle Ages, because I think this is something that might be interesting. The Middle Ages refers to a period of time in the history of Western civilization. Western civilization is more or less characterized by and is the result of things that happened in the Roman Empire. And so the Middle Ages begin when Rome falls in the West. And most historians would date the fall of Rome to the year 476. It was kind of a gradual decline. The western half of the Roman Empire collapses, and Rome is finally conquered by the eastern Goths in the year 476. So the Middle Ages begin in 476 with the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire. The eastern half of the Roman Empire, with its capital city of Constantinople, will actually persist for another thousand years. It becomes known as the Byzantine Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire doesn't fall to the Ottoman Turks until the year 1453. So the Middle Ages begin with the fall of the Western half of the Roman Empire, and the Middle Ages end with the fall of the Eastern half of the Roman Empire. So from 476 to 1453 is this period known as the Middle Ages, and it's generally subdivided into three distinct time periods, the early Middle Ages and then the High Middle Ages and the Late Middle Ages. 
Early Middle Ages go to about the year 1000, High Middle Ages, the 11th, 12th, 13th century, and then the Late Middle Ages, the 14th and 15th centuries. All right, that was just for free. That was an aside. All right, contending for the truth. Uh, We've already looked at some of these verses, but I think it's just important to remind us that when we think about why church councils even took place, the church councils were responses to the rise of error in the church. So whether it was Arius, the heretic, or others who were teaching things that were contrary to biblical doctrine, true believers gathered to defend against false teaching. And of course, the New Testament promises that false teaching is a reality that Christians must be on guard against. So our Lord in Matthew 7 warns against false prophets. And then you have Paul in Acts 20 warning against those who will come in and ravage the flock as savage wolves. You have Peter in 2 Peter warning about false prophets and false teachers. John the Apostle in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he's always warning about those who deny certain key elements about the Lord Jesus Christ and says they're of the spirit of Antichrist. And of course, Jude in Jude 3 and 4 famously says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith against those who are trying to sneak in and introduce destructive heresies. So the New Testament is constantly warning believers to be on guard against false teaching. And the councils of at least early church history are characterized by that kind of zeal for biblical truth. And in that sense, I think they are instructive for us, not only because they help us understand how Christians long ago articulated biblical truth against or in the face of error, but also because they model for us the kind of passion and zeal that we ought to have for the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So in church history, there are seven major councils. And again, there are a lot of other regional synods, smaller councils, or even councils that take place later in church history that are either Roman Catholic councils or Eastern Orthodox councils. But these seven taking place again between the 4th and the 8th century are considered the seven big councils. So the seven major councils, or as I mentioned already, the seven ecumenical councils. For us, we understand the word ecumenical to be a negative term. If you've ever heard that term before, ecumenical means all-encompassing. And in contemporary evangelicalism, ecumenical is a bad thing because it's about evangelicals compromising to try and include everybody in sort of a big tent approach to Christianity. That's the bad or negative use of the term ecumenical. But when we use the word ecumenical in this context, we simply mean that these are the councils that included everybody within the Roman Empire. And actually, some of the first few councils included Christian leaders even outside of the Roman Empire. So it's a reference to the geographical extent of those who were included in the councils when we call them the seven ecumenical councils. And these seven councils were primarily focused on the truth about who Jesus is and especially the truth about how he as the eternal second member of the Trinity 
God, very God, could enter into time and take on flesh and become a man such that he was and is and always will be truly God, and yet in his incarnation and ever since his incarnation is also truly and fully man, which, again, is the miracle and mystery of what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. All right, so these councils involved representatives from all over the Roman world. Uh, It was emperors who convened these councils. So prior to the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, Rome had actively, meaning the Roman government, had actively persecuted the church. And so it was not possible for there to be massive empire-wide gatherings of all the Christian leaders until Constantine issued the Edict of Milan in the year 313, and you had peace that came to the Roman Empire. All right, importantly for believers today, these historic councils do not establish truth or determine sound doctrine, right? Scripture alone is what establishes what we believe And we talked about this when we talked about the Council of Nicaea, and we'll mention it again when we look at that council just briefly as a review. And that is, we're not Trinitarian because of a council in the fourth century. We believe in the Trinity because these doctrines are clearly revealed in Scripture. But we're thankful that when those doctrines were attacked by false teachers, that there were those in the fourth century who stood for biblical truth and even articulated and affirmed biblical truth in response to that specific error. And in that sense, the councils are helpful because they affirm biblical truth and they articulate biblical truth in response to specific attacks. So they give us insight also into how Christian leaders in the early church understood the scriptures and used the scriptures to respond to error. And in this sense, then, we will focus, or in this lesson, we will focus on three of the seven major councils. Now, I will touch on all seven, but uh, we're going to take the seven and reduce it to three and look at really the big three within the big seven. (laughs) So the Council of Nicaea, which we've already talked about, so this will be fast, and then the Council of Constantinople, and then finally the Council of Chalcedon. All right, the Council of Nicaea. Now, this will be a little bit of review. I was not expecting for there to be a jingle that went along with this this morning, but I am so appreciative. And um, it is true, of course, that Nicholas of Myra was one of the pastors who was there at the Council of Nicaea, and that, according to tradition, it's fairly well attested that he did confront Arius and he did smack him in the face and that he was put in prison or jailed. He was incarcerated as a result of disrespecting the proper protocols of how the council was supposed to proceed. But obviously, that is one of my favorite Santa Claus stories, and I'm grateful that you brought it up this morning. That was great. So you'll remember the Council of Nicaea involved a false teacher named Arius. And what was it that Arius denied. Arius denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So the miracle and mystery of Christmas 
is that the baby in the manger, and I'm referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the baby Jesus is God, very God. He's 100% God, and yet also he is fully and completely man. He is 100% God and 100% man. That's the miracle and also the mystery. And when I use the word mystery, what I mean by that is it's a truth that is hard for us to understand because how can you have 100% God and 100% man? How can those things both be true of one person? Well, that's the mystery of it. And of course, that's what makes it such a wonderful thing that in the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God transcends that which we can fully understand. But we do accept it because it's what Scripture teaches, and we worship and adore the Lord Jesus because we recognize that He is God, very God, and yet, as man, He can be our substitute, our representative, and our mediator between God and man, our great high priest. So a false teacher named Arius came along, and he said, well, Jesus, although maybe He is semi-divine, kind of like the pagan Roman deities. They had many semi-divine figures in paganism. He said, although maybe Jesus has some divine qualities, he is not equal to God the Father. In fact, Arius taught that Jesus, uh, that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, Arius denied that he was the second member of the Trinity, and he taught that he was a created being, that the Father had created the Son at some point in the past. And therefore, because the Son, according to Arius, was created, he was not eternal. So there was a time when he was not. That was what Arius said about the Son of God. And in saying that, by denying his eternality, if the Son of God is not co-eternal with God the Father, then he can't be of the same essence as God the Father because the Father has an eternal essence and everything else is created. And since, according to Arius, the Son of God is created, he's not of the same essence as the Father. And if he's not of the same essence as the Father, then he can't be equal to the Father. So just to put this in sort of a modern context, and I know we've already talked about this, but Arius was in reality, a 4th century Jehovah's Witness. So what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe is what Arius taught, that Jesus is a created being, and he's not co-eternal with the Father, he's not co-essential with the Father, and therefore he is not co-equal with the Father. Against that, you have... um, Athanasius and Alexander of Alexandria saying, no, 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 no. You cannot deny the eternality of the Son of God. He is God the Son. Am I still there? No. Okay. It's going to be okay either way. Okay, good. So this was Arius' view, uh, heterousius, and uh, you'll remember that from last time, or I guess it was three weeks ago when we talked about this, but hetero means different, 
Ousius is the Greek word from which we get our English word essence. So different essence. Arius taught that Jesus was of a different essence than God the Father, that the Son of God was of a different essence than the Father. Uh, That view was immediately rejected by the council, and so Arius actually shifted his view to something called homoousius. Homoi means similar. So he said, well, Jesus is of a similar substance or essence to God the Father. But the problem with that is similar is still different, right? Just because, you know, I have a Kia and you have a Mercedes, I can say, hey, they're both cars. They're similar. And you will point out to me, yes, but they are still very different, right? So similar still means different. And so over against that, the orthodox view or the view of Trinitarianism, which is the biblical view, is that no, 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 no. The Son of God is of the same essence or substance as the Father. And this is called homoousius, same essence. Uh, What's really interesting about that is that the difference between the biblical view and Arius's modified view was one letter in Greek, the letter iota or iota, and uh, it's also only one letter different in English, homoousius, the letter I, or homoousius, with no I. But that one little letter was the difference between affirming the deity of Jesus Christ and denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And so the council rightly rejected both of those heretical views, and uh, I was pretty proud of my PowerPoint skills at that point, (laughs) rejected both of the heretical views and affirmed the biblical view that Jesus Christ is co-eternal with God the Father. And we could think of many passages of Scripture that would affirm that. John 1.1 is one that immediately comes to mind. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of the Son of God, and the Word was with God. He's distinct from the Father, and the Word was God. So he was with God in the beginning, and he was God, an affirmation of both his eternality and his deity. Okay, so the Council of Nicaea affirms that Jesus Christ is fully God, 100% God. Now we have the question of his humanity. On the Nicene Creed, we've already looked at and read before, so I won't spend time reading it this morning. But we looked at this three weeks ago when we talked more about the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed affirms the fact that the Son of God is indeed God the Son. He is consubstantial, co-equal, and of the same essence as God the Father. Co-eternal, co-equal, and co-essential. After the Council of Nicaea, in spite of the fact that there was a major council where some 318 senior pastors from all over the Roman Empire came together along with all of their uh, elders and deacons, probably an entourage of several thousand, in spite of the fact that they all affirmed the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is fully God. In spite of their affirmation of that, Arianism actually remained very, very popular and influential in the Roman Empire for the next 50 years. 
And part of the reason for that actually is because Arius was a better marketer of his false teaching than Athanasius and those who affirmed biblical Trinitarianism were. He came up with all sorts of little jingles, uh, none quite as clever as what we heard this morning, but emphasizing the idea that there was a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when the Son of God did not exist, sort of reiterating this idea that the Son of God was a created being, which, of course, is not true. When the Bible talks about Jesus being the firstborn of creation, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, it's using firstborn there not in a chronological sense, but in a positional sense. To be the firstborn meant you were in a privileged position. And you, <clears throat> we know that because later in Colossians, well, we know that because that's how the, New, the Old Testament uses the idea of firstborn. But also in Colossians 1, we know that because just a little bit later in the passage, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. But Jesus was not the first person in redemptive history to be raised from the dead. There were those in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead, and even those when the crucifixion happened who were raised from the dead, all of it prior to Jesus' resurrection. He wasn't chronologically the first person raised from the dead, but positionally he is the preeminent one who has been raised from the dead. So it's important for you to understand how the Bible uses the term firstborn when it is talking about a qualitative position of preeminence, not a chronological sequence. Okay, so Arianism remains popular in the Roman Empire for the next 50 years. And in fact, people were getting in fights in the streets over this issue. I mean, it was a big, big deal. I mean, the way that people react to sporting events in our culture is the way that people were reacting to theological disputes in the fourth century of the Roman Empire. So there was a need for a subsequent council, and this council is the first council of Constantinople. There's a different emperor. Constantine has died. His sons who reigned after him have died. His nephew who reigned after him has died and were to a guy named Theodosius, Theodosius the Great. It was actually Theodosius in the year 380 who declared Nicene Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, so Trinitarian Christianity. And this council came one year later. Arianism remained popular. Arianism not only attacked the deity of the Son of God, it also attacked the deity of the Spirit of God. And so the Arian camp was saying the Holy Spirit is not God and the Son of God is not God, only the Father is God. And over against that, of course, you had Athanasius and some others. Athanasius died about 10 years before this council who kept defending the deity of Christ and also the deity of the Holy Spirit. And where did they go to defend those doctrines? They went to the Word of God. I think it's just important to always reemphasize and reiterate that point that they defended these doctrines from Scripture. Well, in addition to attacks still on the deity of Jesus Christ, we also had a false teacher named Apollinarius, Apollinarius of Laodicea, and <clears throat> Apollinarius introduced the idea that, well, okay, Jesus is 100% God, but maybe he's not 100% man. Maybe it's just the shell of a human body that the divine 
person sort of occupied. And this heresy is sort of famously known as the God in a bod heresy for that reason. But it's the idea that Jesus wasn't 100% man. He was just like 50% man. It was just the, the physical shell. But the idea of his mind, his spirit, his soul, his will, those were things that were all just sort of his godness just inserted into a human a human shell. Uh, the, the ancient illustration for this was like a letter being put into an envelope. So it was just the envelope of his humanity. So to use mathematical, uh, a, a mathematical, I suppose, quantification of this, we could say Apollinarius said that Jesus is 100% God, but only 50% man. Whereas Arius destroyed the PowerPoint. <clears throat> the sound guys have been warning me the whole time, you're going to step on the cord, and I finally did. So, all right. Arius, by contrast, said, well, Jesus is 100% man, but he's only like 0% God. Okay, so these are the views that are at the Council of Constantinople. Are we back? Nope. Try one more time here. Okay, it's all right. I can... Oh, wait. No, there we go. I should have followed Steve Lawson's advice. Steve Lawson does not like PowerPoint. <clears throat> he says, we, we like to joke that Dr. Lawson's only PowerPoint is when he does this. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Dr. Lawson doesn't need a PowerPoint. He is the PowerPoint. Okay. Um, yeah, he's sort of the Chuck Norris of preaching. Okay. So at the Council of Constantinople, you have the Arian view. It denies the deity of Christ. And then you have the Apollinarian view, which denies the full humanity of Christ. And over against that, you have the biblical view, which says, no, 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 no. Jesus is 100% God, so Arianism is out. And Jesus is 100% man, so Apollinarianism is out. Also at the Council of Constantinople, because Arianism had attacked the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit, that council affirmed the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so at Constantinople, they actually add a paragraph to the Nicene Creed about the Holy Spirit, because the original Creed of Nicaea only said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit wasn't under attack at the Council of Nicaea. But at the Council of Constantinople, 50 years later, they add this paragraph about believing in the deity of the Holy Spirit. So that the Nicene Creed today, if you ever see a copy or a translation of it, it's going to be the expanded Niceano-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the one that comes out of the Council of Constantinople in 381. Niceano-Constantinopolitan. You guys can say that, right? It's great. Okay, so 
Here we have coming out of these two councils, looking to the scriptures, we have the articulation of these two doctrinal realities about the Lord Jesus. That in his incarnation, he who was and always will be fully and truly God took on flesh and became fully and truly man. 100% God, 100% man. Right? We all know that. We all affirm that. We all believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, that brings us to the third council that we want to talk about this morning, and that's the council of Chalcedon. This is in the year 451. And the question that arises when we get to the council of Chalcedon is, okay, if Jesus is fully and truly God, and also, since the incarnation, fully and truly man then how do those two things work together, right? So Chalcedon is where they're trying to figure out Christmas, not what gifts are under the tree, but how the miracle and mystery of the incarnation works together. And you have uh, two different perspectives on this coming into this particular council. Uh, The one perspective is from a bishop named Nestorius. He was the senior pastor, the bishop of the church in Constantinople. And Nestorius said, well, if if Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, well, actually, what Nestorius was accused of, of teaching was this, that that must mean that there are sort of two persons in Jesus. Uh, There's his deity, there's his humanity, and so there's sort of two persons. That was called Nestorianism. Most historians don't think Nestorius actually believed that, but he was accused of believing that. And the result of that was that it kind of created almost this split personality in Jesus, that like sometimes he's the God person, sometimes he's the man person. And these two two persons never, never mixed. And so that the illustration for this, uh, for this heresy, the historic illustration of it, was the idea of water and oil being put together. Like the water and the oil never mix. So divine nature, human nature, two natures, Nestorianism taught resulted in two persons. Well, that doesn't sound right. Jesus doesn't have a split personality disorder, right? He's obviously not. So something's wrong with that. So we had in Egypt a monk named Eutychus who came up with a different view, and he said, well, obviously Jesus can't have two persons, two personalities. That wouldn't make any sense. So maybe because he's one person, if we work backwards, maybe he's just one nature, and that nature is kind of a hybrid of his deity and his humanity. So if if Nestorianism taught 100% plus 100% equals 200%, Eutychus or Eutychianism said, no, 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 100% on this end means it has to be like 50% and 50%. Well, that's, that's not a good equation either, right? So 
Eutychus, the, the ancient illustration for Eutychianism was the idea of water mixed with wine, which it's not really water anymore, and it's not really wine anymore. It's this kind of diluted mixture. I like to use the illustration of jello because I think that's an even more vivid illustration. You have liquid water and you have powder gelatin. And when you mix them together, they result in something that's completely different than the original two, this hybrid of jello. Some of you right now are like, mmm, jello. <clears throat> Any case, good thing it's not second service or you'd be really hungry for jello. Point is, neither one of these views was adequate. So if we were to look at them in terms of sort of the council itself, it might look something kind of like this. Nestorianism said two natures results in two persons. Eutychianism said, no, 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 there should only be one person, so that means there has to be this hybrid nature. And when the senior pastors, the bishops who gathered to think about these things, when they looked at Scripture, they said, no, 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 no. Jesus is only one person, but he has, he possesses in his one person both a divine and a human nature. So the two persons idea of Nestorianism is rejected, and the hybrid, what's called the monophysite view, the hybrid nature of Eutychianism was also rejected, and the result was a more biblical path forward that said Jesus possesses in his incarnation two natures, such that he is fully God and fully man, and yet those two natures coexist perfectly within the one person of Jesus Christ. Two natures, one person. That, by the way, and I'll teach you a little seminary term here, is called the hypostatic union, which, again, is this idea that in Scripture what we see is both his divine nature and his human nature, and yet Scripture affirms that Jesus Christ is one person, not multiple persons. All right, I realize we're maybe a little bit in the deep end of the discussions that took place at these councils, but I think it's so interesting to think about the fact that Christians throughout the subsequent centuries after Jesus was born spent a lot of time thinking about what really took place in that miraculous event. In fact, I think they spent far more time thinking about these things at a profound and deep level than sometimes we do. We're just like, yay, it's Christmas. And um, I love the fact that Christians throughout church history were really pondering what are the implications of what Scripture teaches. All right, so the Chalcedonian Creed says this. It says, we confess that one and the same Christ, Lord and only begotten Son, is to be acknowledged in two natures. And now notice this, these four sort of uh, boundary markers of orthodoxy. Without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. And that's because to say that his natures were confused or changed would be the error of Eutychianism, the idea of a hybrid nature. But to say that they were separated or divided would be the error of Nestorianism, the idea of creating two persons 
in Christ. So one person, two natures, and those two natures coexist without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction between natures was never abolished by their union, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in one person and one hypostasis, one substance. So this is the closest that church history gets to detailing what happened when Jesus was born. And what's amazing about this is that these Christian leaders in the 5th century essentially say, well, we know that it's not two persons, and we know that it's not a hybrid nature. We know that it's two natures in one person, but how exactly that works, we don't really know. So it affirms the mystery by saying, just don't veer into Eutychianism or into Nestorianism. Affirm the fact that in that miracle of the incarnation, the two natures of Christ, his deity and his humanity are united. And they're united without change or confusion, without separation or division in one person the Lord Jesus Christ, who we worship as both God and man. And because he is both God and man, he can represent men to God and reconcile sinners to the Savior. Okay, the other four councils. This will be really brief, but I just feel like for the sake of, com of completeness, I need to at least mention them. The other four councils, the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Ephesus was all about what do we emphasize when we think about the birth of Jesus? When we think about the baby in the manger, do we emphasize his humanity or his deity or his messiahship? And the Council of Ephesus said we really should emphasize his deity. Now, the truth is the Bible emphasizes all three. So it's not wrong to say that the baby in the manger is man to say the baby in the manger is Messiah, and to say the baby in the manger is God. All three of those things are true. What's interesting about this council is that the way that they articulated that was that they actually spoke about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the question was, how should we think about Mary in giving birth to Jesus? Should we think about her as the bearer of man or the bearer of Christ, Messiah, or the bearer of God. And the council said, we should think of her as the bearer of God. Now, the purpose behind that was not to elevate Mary. It was instead to safeguard the doctrine of the deity of Christ, even in his birth. However, and unfortunately, in subsequent centuries, the fact that Mary begins to be known as the bearer of God, or to use the Roman Catholic phrase, the mother of God, will inevitably begin to elevate Mary to a position that is unbiblical and ultimately idolatrous. So the, the Council of Ephesus has some really negative ramifications in later church history, but that wasn't the intent in the year 431. They were seeking to safeguard the doctrine of the deity of Christ in talking about his birth. 
Secondly, the Second Council of Constantinople in the year uh, 553 was a reiteration of and a reaffirmation of the Council of Chalcedon. And we don't have time to talk a lot about that council, and that's fine. The Third Council of Constantinople in the year 680-681 was a discussion about whether or not will is a property of nature or person. And again, we're kind of in the deep end on Greek metaphysics here, but just for those who are still interested, the Third Council of Constantinople articulated the idea that will is a property of nature, which means that in his incarnation, the Lord Jesus possessed both a divine will and a human will. And because he shared in the divine essence as the second member of the Trinity, he shared in the divine will, but he also, as a man, possessed a human will, which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he can say things like, not my will, but your will be done. Not my human will, but rather the will of God be accomplished. That particular council has been at the forefront of a lot of recent theological debates about Trinitarian issues, uh, specifically issues related to something called eternal functional subordination. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. If you do know what that is, this is the council you want to look at if you're interested in that debate. And then finally, the Second Council of Nicaea. And this is kind of an interesting one. Jesus is, we've affirmed, right? Jesus is fully man and fully God. Nicaea 1, fully God, Constantinople, fully man, Chalcedon, fully God and fully man in one person. All of that has been affirmed. So here's the question. All the way back in the book of Exodus, second commandment, God said, you shall not make graven images of God. So the question is, if Jesus is God and he is, then is it a violation of the second commandment to make images or pictures of Jesus? That was what the Second Council of Nicaea was all about. So long before the chosen or before children's Bible story books, uh, Christians were debating whether or not depicting an image of Jesus was a violation of the second commandment based on the fact that Jesus is God. Now, ultimately, that council said, no, Jesus is, according to the book of Hebrews, the image of the invisible God. And when we make an image of Jesus, we are representing not his deity, but his humanity. And so to make an image of Jesus in his humanity is not a violation of the second commandment. That's what that council ultimately concluded. But That council in particular is a bit controversial because you also have something called the veneration of images that was approved at that council, and we as evangelicals would not want to venerate anything other than God himself. Okay, so those are the other four councils, which completes our list of seven. So evaluating councils and controversies. All right, Protestant groups have held varied opinions about which councils to accept. The Seventh Council, with its approval of the veneration of icons, what I just mentioned, is particularly 
troubling for evangelicals who rightly view such practices as compromising true worship. And so as evangelical, so for Roman Catholics and for Eastern Orthodox, they would accept all seven councils. For us as evangelicals, we're going to say, well, not so fast. And the reason we're going to say not so fast is because church councils are not our ultimate authority, right? The word of God is our ultimate authority. And so we are going to subject councils to scripture. We're not going to simply accept them just because they're old or because a bunch of people got together and agreed on something. In learning about church councils and historic creeds, it's important to remember a simple principle. God's word is our authority over church history and over church tradition. And so that means, as I just said, that we evaluate church councils through the lens of the word of God. Like the Bereans, Acts 17.11, believers ought to go to the scriptures to confirm the teachings and traditions of men. Uh, We go to the scriptures to evaluate anything that comes from a church council. So we talked this morning about the fact that the council of Nicaea affirmed the deity of Christ. But why do we believe in the deity of Christ? Because that's what scripture reveals. We talked about how the Council of Constantinople affirms the full humanity of Christ. But why do we believe in the full humanity of Christ? Because that's what Scripture teaches. And the Council of Chalcedon talked about the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and yet only one person, two natures, one person. Why do we affirm that? Well, it's not because of a, you know, a creed in the year 451. It's because we see in Scripture his deity and his humanity, and we also see in Scripture that he doesn't have a split personality. He's one person. So we affirm these things because they are found in Scripture. We're grateful for the church councils because they affirm and articulate these truths in response to false teaching, but it's not because of councils that we believe these things. It's because of what the Word of God reveals as to why we believe what we believe. And so we should be grateful for historic councils because they do affirm these clear biblical truths, but we should also remember that the authority for what we believe is not found in councils or creeds, not in an ultimate sense, but only in the truth of God's word. So there you go. Aren't you ready to go get a cup of cocoa or I don't know, a peppermint mocha or something and go see Christmas lights, and hear Bing Crosby sing great, or Led Zeppelin. No, just kidding. Uh, Bing Crosby sing great Christmas carols, and then talk to your friends about church councils. (laughs) Bottom line, though, before we close is this. At the end of the day, it's not about councils or creeds, right? It's about the fact that we worship a God who in his great wisdom saw fit to send God the Son as a gift, the greatest gift, to this earth so that he would take on flesh and become a man, and as a man he would live a perfect life, die as a substitute for those who place their faith in him, pay the penalty for their sin, rise again, demonstrating victory over death so that all who trust in him have the hope of eternal life, of being reconciled to God, and of living forever in resurrected glory. 
That's the wonder of what we celebrate at Christmas. The fact that Christians throughout church history struggled to think through how that all worked together is just a demonstration of the fact that their focus of their worship was on that baby in the manger who's no longer in the manger but is seated at the right hand of the Father and who will one day return in glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do give you thanks that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, that he was born of a virgin, and that he did, as Philippians 2 says, take on flesh. And having become a man, as man, he lived a perfect life, dying on a cross, being buried in a tomb, rising again on the third day, ascending to the right hand of the Father, our great high priest, our perfect sacrifice, our wonderful mediator. If, if Jesus had never been born, we would be hopelessly lost. We would have no substitute, no mediator, and no savior. But because Jesus was born, because God became man, we as sinful men and women might be reconciled to God. And we look forward to spending eternity in your presence when we see our Savior face to face. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.